Welcome to our continuing 2020 educational webinar series. I am Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. And we help manage every aspect of a compliance program and our training library provides hundreds of modules that are easy to assign and track. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Rachel V. Rose, JD, MBA, Principal with Rachel V. Rose, Attorney at Law, PLLC, Houston, Texas, with us today. Ms. Rose has a unique background, having worked in many different facets of healthcare, securities and international law and business throughout her career. Her practice focuses on a variety of cybersecurity, healthcare and securities law issues related to industry compliance and transactional work, as well as representing plaintiffs in Dodd-Frank False Claims Act whistleblower claims, which remain under seal. Ms. Rose holds an MBA with minors in healthcare and entrepreneurship from Vanderbilt University and a law degree from Stetson University College of Law, where she graduated with various honors, including the National Scribes Award and the William F. Blues Pro Bono Service Award. Ms. Rose is licensed in Texas. Currently, she is the chair of the Federal Bar Association's Government Relations Committee the co-editor of the American Health Lawyers Association's Enterprise Risk Management Handbook for Healthcare Entities, second edition, as well as co-author of the books, The ABCs of ACOs and What Are International Business Considerations. He has been named consecutively to the Texas Bar College, the National Women Trial Lawyers Association's Top 25, and Houstonia Magazine's Top Lawyers for Healthcare. Ms. Rose is an affiliated member with the Baylor College of Medicine's Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy, where she teaches bioethics. Before we begin, I would like to mention at First Healthcare Compliance, we strive to serve as a trusted resource for compliance professionals, and every month we celebrate their hard work and dedication with our Compliance Super Ninja recognition. For our latest Super Ninja, our team is turning the spotlight on Julie Garcia, Business Office Manager at Coastal Vascular Center. Julie says, Coastal Vascular Center consists of three physicians and 12 employees. We have three office locations, and yet the whole group works as a team. They all respond well, and the compliance updates and change, um, they respond well to the compliance updates and changes. I'm so fortunate to have such a close-knit and caring group of professionals to work with every day. May sound cheesy, but it's true. Congratulations, Julie. Our team is honored to have the privilege of working with you. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We'll address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There's no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. 
So Rachel, a very, very warm welcome. Thank you so much for being here today and giving us these up to the minute updates. Thank you. Catherine, it's my pleasure. And it's always a delight for me to present for First Healthcare Compliance. As you know, I normally do a lot with HIPAA and cybersecurity and the High Tech Act. However, these do start and AKS final rules cannot be ignored as they affect pretty much every facet of the healthcare system. So no presentation is complete without a disclaimer. The information presented is not meant to constitute legal advice, consult an attorney for advice on a specific situation. The information presented is current as of the date of the initial presentation. Participants are encouraged to check government and other relevant websites for the most up-to-date information. So here's what I'm going to be focusing on today. First and foremost, before we can delve into the new final start and anti-kickback statute final rules, we really need to gain a semblance of what value-based care is. And next, we can then go into some of the general differences between Stark and anti-kickback, which are still applicable in light of the new final rules. From there, we'll delve into the new rules and some specific definitions that entities really need to appreciate. From there, we will go into the application of these new rules definitions in a practical matter. From there, we'll get into referring for volume and value, what's okay and what's not, fair market value, and then finally, we'll conclude with some compliance tips and risk mitigation suggestions. So what is value-based care? Well, quite frankly, before the passage of the Affordable Care Act nearly a decade ago, the focus on payment in the healthcare system was fee-for-service. So the goal of value-based programs is basically to reward healthcare providers with incentive payments for quality of care that they give people who are Medicare beneficiaries. And these programs evolved out of the Affordable Care Act, as I mentioned, and CMS's larger objective of a quality strategy. So, what is the three-part aim of CMS? Well, first and foremost, it's better care for individuals. Next, better, better health for populations. And lastly, lowering the cost of goods and services. For those who are on the hospital side, you may see value-based programs come in the form of value-based purchasing or bundle payments or as we'll see in a couple of slides, those hospital-acquired conditions. Also, whenever we look specifically at the ICD-10 codes, one of the drivers behind that was in fact having a broader base of codes so that more specifics could be gleaned on the overall aggregate data that would be collected, and in turn, how that can translate into better health for populations. 
So why are these programs important? And again, the focus is on the quality of care and not necessarily the quantity of care provided to patients. So originally CMS had five value-based programs. And basically the fundamental goal was linking the provider of performance of quality measures to provider payments. And end-stage renal disease quality incentive program, hospital value-based purchasing program, which I just mentioned, hospital readmission reduction program, which goes along with the hospital acquired conditions, which is number five, the value modifier program, which is also known as the physician value-based modifier, or PVBM program. It's also notable that skilled nursing facilities and home health also have value-based programs. Additionally, accountable care organizations do fall under this umbrella. So I like this timeline that was featured on one of the CMS HHS websites, and it really gives a very nice overview of the timing of the various legislation, as well as the programs that became implemented. So MIPA, or the Medicare Improvements for Patients and Providers Act, actually stems back to 2008. From there, we go to the Affordable Care Act in 2010, and then we have about a four-year lag before Protecting Access to Medicare Act is implemented. And then in 2015, we see MACRA, which is the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act of 2015. Now, the related programs are under each of the legislative initiatives. And end-stage renal disease, we see in 2012, again, that HBD. BP we see and the HRRVP, so Hospital Readmission Reduction Plan and Hospital Value-Based Purchasing 2012. HAC we see come into play in 2014. Again, those are those hospital-acquired conditions. The Value Modifier or Physician Value-Based Modifier comes about in 2015. Then we have the Skilled Nursing Facility Value-Based Program. From there, we get into Alternative Payment Methods, as well as MIPS, or Merit-Based Incentive Payment Systems. So what are some of the CMS-authorized programs and activities. Now, I'm highlighting CMS for two reasons. A, as we know, CMS impacts both Medicare and Medicaid. And as we see in the chart later on, that really relates to Stark Law. It's critical to note, though, in light of these new rules and regulations, that commercial payers are mentioned throughout those final rules. So what's notable is that commercial payers have also begun to engage in value-based types of payment programs. That obviously varies from payer to payer, but between 2012 and approximately 2017, there was an increase from 17% participation in commercial plan value-based efforts 
to over 50%. So there we see a jump in the private sector as well. So here, CMS nests authorized programs and activities. First, it aims at reducing and preventing healthcare-associated infections. And I'm often asked, how do I do that? Well, first and foremost, one of the key ways not to get dinged or have payments taken away is to document whether or not an individual has certain symptoms or, for example, run a urinalysis to see if they already have a UTI upon admission versus having them discharged and coming back for a UTI. That's a very beneficial way to mitigate the risk of having to pay back or having a payment reduced because of a hospital or a healthcare facility associated infection. Reducing and preventing adverse drug reactions. This is critical and for those of you who enjoy reading, Josie's story actually relates to this in terms of adverse drug events. It's a great story about a child who was treated at John Hopkins and how what happened to her really caused a change throughout the entire healthcare system, not only in reporting drug events, but also in the larger scheme of different adverse events, response times, and so forth in hospitals. Community living councils, multiple chronic conditions. This obviously starts to relate to MSDRGs and that form of payment as well instead of DRGs because you get into those multiple symptoms that people have in multiple conditions. National Alzheimer's Project Act, National Quality Strategy. I mentioned accountable care organizations. That's key and that's to the uh, right of the slide. Doable eligible coordination, that is absolutely critical. Fraud and abuse enforcement, I am going to touch on fraud and abuse enforcement in light of the False Claims Act and Stark and Anti-Kickback even within the new final rules. And then we start getting into the different agencies the value base, the payments, and then the surveys. So what are some general differences between the anti-kickback statute and the Stark Law? Well, first and foremost, I provided the citations because some people may be new to healthcare, but it's also a good reminder, and this way you don't have to go and look them up. But the anti-kickback statute originally passed in 1972. It has been around for a very long time. Stark Law, by way of contrast, was originally enacted in 1989 by Congressman Pete Stark from California. This initial enactment is known as Stark One, and it prohibited physicians from referring patients to laboratories in which they had a financial interest. Then in 1993, the Stark Law was expanded to cover other services referred to as designated health services. And this 1993 expansion is known as Stark II. Those amendments became effective in 1995. CMS promulgated further regulations for both Stark I and Stark II in three phases. 
and the three phases were intended to be read together after each phase was enacted. And the last phase became effective approximately 13 years ago. General exceptions to start before the new final rule included physician services, in-office ancillary services, prepaid plans, intra-family rural referrals, academic medical centers. And it's also very critical to note that many states have similar Stark and or anti-kickback laws that prohibit kickbacks and or restrict physician self-referral. This is important because typically when a key TAM action is brought under the False Claims Act by a private relator, the states who have these similar laws may be included as other, other government entities as well. So the liability that entities or defendants could be facing is actually much greater than just the federal violation. So in order to break things down into a more digestible version, what I did was to actually, I poached this from CMS, and it's such a great breakdown of the overall differences between Stark and anti-kickback. So on the left-hand side is AKS, and on the right-hand side is Stark Law. So what are the general prohibitions? For the anti-kickback statute, there's a general prohibition against offering, paying, soliciting, or receiving anything of value to induce or reward referrals or general federal health care program business. By way of contrast, the Stark Law prohibits a physician from referring Medicare patients for designated health services to an entity with which the physician or an immediate family member. Now, an immediate family member is defined in the statute. So if you are unsure, then make sure to look at that. Another area to be very, very conscious of is if a person is a fiance of the, of the provider, but not necessarily a spouse. Yet, there have been cases where a fiancé has been implemented, implicated, implemented in various cases. Has a financial relationship unless an exception applies. It also prohibits the designated health services entity from submitting claims to Medicare for those services resulting from a prohibited referral. So, what are the referrals that are prohibited under each law. AKS is referrals from anyone. Stark Law is referrals from a physician. Items and services, any item or service under AKS. Under Stark Law, designated health services. Intent, here there is a scienter requirement under the AKS with the knowing and willful. Stark Law, there is no intent standard for overpayment. It's a strict liability. Intent required for civil monetary penalties for knowing violations. Penalties, AKS has both civil and criminal penalties. Stark Law is civil only. 
exceptions. They're called safe harbors under the anti-kickback statute, and they're called exceptions under the Stark Law. What that means is in order not to be held liable, you really need to make sure that you're fitting squarely within the safe harbor under AKS or a safe harbor because there are many, as well as relevant Stark Law exceptions. So just because you meet an AKS safe harbor does not mean that a Stark Law exception is being met or vice versa. So that's critical. Federal health care programs, the AKS applies to all programs and the Stark Law applies to Medicare. And I've seen some instances where Medicaid's been pulled into, which in a way makes sense because both Medicare and Medicaid are part of the Social Security Act and both programs are administered by CMS in part. That Medicaid's obviously a joint responsibility between the federal government through CMS as well as individual state governments. So now that we have the foundation of both value-based initiatives and the overview of Stark and the anti-kickback statute, Let's delve into the new rules and definitions. Well, first and foremost, it's important to note that the new rules, both for Stark and AKS, do become effective on January the 19th of 2021. There is one exception in Stark which becomes effective in January 1 of 2022. But really, this means that we are close to that 30 to 45 day mark already, depending on when you're reviewing this presentation. So HHS announced the AKS final rule on November 20th. And they identified a broad reach of the AKS and civil monetary penalty law provision, which prohibits inducement to beneficiaries, specifically as potentially inhibiting beneficial arrangements that would advance the transition to value-based care and improve the coordination of patient care across settings in both the federal health care programs and the commercial sector. To receive safe harbor protection, the arrangement must squarely meet each requirement of a and applicable safe harbor. And when in doubt, be sure to request an advisory opinion from HHS OIG regarding a specific situation. And I would advise having an attorney do that request. Seven new safe harbors, four modified safe harbors, and one new exception under the Benefary Inducement CMP was codified in the AKS final rule. Now, I'm not delving into all of the new final rules and safe harbors in detail, just because there is so much. Between the Stark and the AKS final rules, there is over 1,600 pages of new final rules. So what I tried to do here is provide an overview in this presentation, and then I'm sure in subsequent presentations we'll take particular segments of these rules. But value-based arrangements, which we know what they are from the previous slide, 
The objective is to foster that better coordinated and managed patient care. So here we have the care coordination arrangements to improve quality, health outcomes, and efficiency. From there, we delve into value-based arrangements with substantial downside financial risk and value-based arrangements with full financial risk. New safe harbors that vary by the type of remuneration protected, level of financial risk assumed by the parties, and safeguards included as safe harbor conditions. I honestly have to say that this level of financial risk is probably the most difficult safe harbor to meet. It's because a physician, and I will have the caveat, needs to engage outside counsel and consultants, typically in the area of financial expertise, because you have to start to value upside risk and downside risk for some of these initiatives. And as you know, I teach bioethics at Baylor College of Medicine, and I cannot even imagine, even though I have an MBA, having to try and explain all these different models to a med student and have them learn that as well. So I do think it's very important that the providers appreciate all facets of the risk and what it means, but also for academic medical centers to begin to think, when do we start giving an overview of these types of items? And maybe it's during residency, maybe it's a couple hour overview course on a weekend or something like that, but it's just something to be mindful of. Patient engagement and support. A new safe harbor for certain tools and supports furnished to patients to improve quality, health outcomes, and efficiency, CMS-sponsored models. This is a new safe harbor for certain remuneration provided in connection with a CMS model as defined in the final rule, which should reduce the need for separate and distinct fraud and abuse waivers for new CMS-sponsored models. One thing I will say throughout both Stark and Anti-Kickback is there is still an emphasis on fraud, waste, and abuse. And that's something to bear in mind too. So you really, again, need to make sure that the safe harbors are squarely being met. Now, cybersecurity technology and services is a very interesting new safe harbor, and that relates to donations for cybersecurity technology and services. This is one to read very, very closely. So here are some safe harbor modifications. The electronic health records, items, and services, first modifications to the existing safe harbor for EHR. It should read EHR, but every time I type in EHR, it flips. So it should be EHR and not HER. Items and services to add protections for certain related cybersecurity technology to update provisions regarding interoperability and remove the sunset date. This also ties into various value-based initiatives such as MIPS and MACRA, as well as the program formerly known as Meaningful Use. So you really want to make sure that you're reading these different safe harbors and PARI materia 
with those other value-based initiatives. Outcomes-based payments and part-time arrangements, modifications to the existing safe harbor for personal services and management contracts to add flexibility for certain outcomes-based payments and part-time arrangements. We then get into warranties, modifications to the existing safe harbor for warranties to revise the definition of warranty and provide protection for bundled warranties for one or more items and related services. Local transportation. For those of you who have been involved in healthcare and more specifically healthcare law and compliance for a while, we have seen the transportation issue evolve over time. And there are, in fact, advisory opinions that have been issued by HHS OIG on this type of benefit pre the final rule. So here, local transportation expands and modifies mileage limits for rural areas and for transportation for patients discharged from an inpatient facility or released from a hospital after being placed in observation status for at least 24 hours. I'm gonna highlight the critical access hospital and rural health clinic rules and regulations. I would pay very close attention and read those in conjunction because is, as we all know, not all rural health centers and critical access hospitals are really located all that far from major metropolitan areas. Now, typically it's been a 75 mile radius. So you really need to make sure, for example, Houston, Texas has a lot of cities which are much smaller, but in between we have some gaps which qualified at least at one point as critical access hospitals. But as areas begin to become more urban and metropolitan and grow, that could shift the dynamic for the critical access hospital and the rural uh, health center. It's imperative to read the state laws related to this in conjunction with the federal laws. But that's an area where you could run into potential liability. So again, just be very conscientious about that. Accountable care organizations, beneficiary incentive program, codification of the statutory exception to the definition of remuneration under the AKS related to ACO beneficiary initiative programs for the Medicare Shared Savings Program. For those of you who are familiar with ACOs, which are accountable care organizations, there are different varieties of ACOs. And instead of having safe harbors or exceptions, ACOs have waivers which serve a similar purpose. So make sure that you're reading the ACO waivers in relation to the safe harbors. Health, telehealth for select in-home dialysis. Telehealth is still a moving target and it's very clear that COVID-19 and the pandemic really accelerated the adoption of telehealth. But it's important to note that a lot of areas of telehealth are still not permanent. And that's something to be very, very conscientious of. 
So here it was made okay that remuneration in the CMP rules at 42 CFR 1003.110, which interprets and incorporates a new exception to the prohibition on beneficiary inducement for telehealth technologies furnished to certain in-home dialysis patients. So keywords here are telehealth technologies and certain in-home dialysis patients. So this is a very specific group and even within the group of in-home dialysis patients, it would only apply to certain in-home dialysis patients. So again, I would liken that to waiving a copay, which by the way, was not addressed in the Stark new final rule or the AKS final rule. A carte blanche waiver of a copay or a deductible has been viewed as a kickback for a very long time. There is a possibility that if a patient is evaluated on an individual basis for financial hardship, then it's okay to waive that copay or deductible. And there were also waivers of copays or deductibles during COVID-19 under the waiver 1135. But again, there is a sunset date. So when the pandemic is deemed over, you absolutely have to read and watch closely for the repealing of waiver of copays and deductibles on a broader basis. So again, the effective date for most of the start final rules is January 19th of 2021 with that one provision of January 1, 2022. In general, the Stark Law prohibits a physician from referring to an entity owned by him or herself or an immediate family member where there is a financial relationship. But Stark also prohibits an entity from filing claims with Medicare for services resulting from a prohibited referral and Medicare cannot pay if the claims are submitted. Like the AKS new final rule, the start new final rule revolves around value-based healthcare delivery and payment system implementation. So what are some of the new Stark Law exceptions? Well, first, the new value-based exceptions include a carefully woven fabric of safeguards to ensure that the Stark Law continues to provide meaningful protection against overutilization and other harms. As I mentioned under the anti-kickback provisions, which really honed in on curtailing fraud, waste, and abuse, we see similar language creeping up here in the new Stark Law final rules as well. The final policies recognize that incentives are different in a healthcare system that pays for value rather than volume of services provided. The key areas that I found to focus on were not only the value-based arrangements, but truly the donations of cybersecurity technology that safeguard the integrity of the healthcare ecosystem, regardless of whether the parties operate in a fee-for-service or a value-based system. So 
how do we go about applying these new definitions that I'm about to delve into? I'm going to say very carefully and start at the top with what's known as a value-based enterprise. What's critical to note is you will read two terms. One is a value-based enterprise and another one is a value-based arrangement. And typically, a value-based arrangement is just between two entities. While a value-based enterprise includes two or more value-based participants. So here, what is the definition of a VBE? First, a collaboration to achieve at least one value-based purpose. So let's break this down. What does that mean? That you have two or more entities or persons reaching an agreement to collaborate to achieve at least one value-based purpose. Well, it means you need to define what that value-based purpose is, and that's going to vary from enterprise to enterprise or arrangement to arrangement each of which is a party to value-based arrangement with the other or at least one other VBE participant in the value-based enterprise. And this is where, as I expressly state on another slide, it may be helpful to have a separate entity form, separate legal entity form to do this. This is going to be an emerging area for transactional lawyers. It's also one that needs to be considered in light of a variety of laws, but it's not required. And I can't stress that enough. Forming an LLC or a general partnership with limited partnership is not necessarily required, but depending on the size of the enterprise, it may probably make sense to do so. That have an accountable body or person responsible for the financial and operational oversight of the value-based enterprise. So what does this mean? Well, if you have an LLC or a management entity, that needs to have adequate record keeping and to make sure that the parameters for that value-based purpose are absolutely being met. If it's a smaller type of arrangement, then you can have a contract and appoint someone in that contract and in the governing document, which is referenced in number four, that describes the enterprise and how the participants intend to achieve its value-based purpose. Now, for those of you who have been through any crash course on business or studied business in undergrad or have an MBA, you will remember SMART goals. They're specific, they're measurable, they're attainable, they're manageable, measurable, and then they are time sensitive. So I would recommend doing the value-based purpose or purposes in the context of SMART goals. A VBE participant is defined as a person or entity that engages in at least one value-based activity as part of a value-based enterprise. And a value-based purpose, which as we noted in the VBE, which needs to be really detailed, means any of the following. 
So these are ors, they're not ands. Coordinating and managing the care of a target patient population. So let's step back. You have to define your target patient population. And I would not make it as broad as all Medicare beneficiaries. In fact, that may still get one into hot water because of the one purpose test under the Third Circuit for AKS violations. A healthier way to look at that would be, for example, to reduce the rate of infections in total joint patients and not make it specific to a particular type of insurance or government program. Improving the quality of care for a target patient population. Here, you might look at that, and I'm always reminded of the healthcare company HealthWave, when, which I learned about when I was in health or business school at Vanderbilt. So HealthWave was launched in order to get patients to become more compliant with, for example, chronic conditions like diabetes or hypertension. They would interact with the patients as a third party. Did you exercise? How's your blood sugar? Have you taken it today? How is your insulin or your metformin tracking? Are you keeping track of that? What's your weight? Just did you get so many steps in? Things like that, which can improve the quality of care for a patient population. Next, appropriately reducing the cost to or gross in expenditures of payers without reducing the quality of care for a target patient population. This really goes back to some of the early issues with HMOs and what they experienced on cutting costs so far that they really withheld care from patients. Now, that's something that has been deemed to be inappropriate over and over again, both as we've seen additional regulations around health maintenance organizations, as well as various cases which have been decided over the past couple of decades. Or the last value-based purpose is transitioning from healthcare delivery and payment mechanisms based on the volume of items and services provided to mechanisms based on the quality of care and control of costs of care for a target patient population. Now, a lot of entities have been doing this for a very long time in hospitals, for example, but you can go back and look at the advisory opinions which were rendered. Typically, when there was a surgical specialty who was willing to reduce the number of vendors that it would be willing to use for total joints or trauma care or spinal surgery, for example. By doing that, the group purchasing organizations were able to offer different types of legitimate incentives based on economies of scale. And in turn, the hospital and the doctors were able to reach a, an agreement for sharing in those savings in order to control the cost of care. So those are items that HHS OIG did address under those advisory opinions. And then subsequently, we've seen various tweaking in 
the regulations related to that. Value-based enterprise or arrangement, again, it does not need to be a separate legal entity. Depending on the size and complexity, it may be prudent to do so. A key caveat is that a BBE may assume legal obligations in different ways. For example, all VBE participants in a VBE could each sign a contract for the VBE to assume full financial risk from a payer. Again, this is very fact and circumstance specific and what works for one VBE definitely will not work or be in the best interest of another. So that's something to consult legal counsel, consultants, as well as uh, financial experts in the area of healthcare. Alternatively, contractual arrangements between the various VBE participants that assign risk jointly and severably is another option. So transitioning to Stark Law, this is absolutely crucial. And if there is one distinction that I need to highlight, it's going to be VBE participant and how that varies between the Stark final rule and the anti-kickback final rule. So basically, under Stark, the definition of VBE participant as finalized does not exclude any specific persons, entities, or organizations from qualifying as a VBE participant. So here, that even includes pharmaceutical manufacturers, manufacturers and distributors of DME POS, PBMs, those pharmacy benefit managers, wholesalers and distributors, which as an aside, the Supreme Court just upheld an Arkansas law related to PBMs, so you probably want to read that case. Again, look at what's in bold at the bottom, and as I switch the slide, it should be very discernible what the key difference is between Stark and anti-kickback. By way of contrast, HHS OIG states, entities do not qualify for value-based safe harbors known as the ineligible entity list. These include pharmaceutical manufacturers, distributors, and wholesalers referred to generally throughout the preamble as pharmaceutical companies, PBMs, laboratory companies, Pharmacies that primarily compound drugs or primarily dispense compounded drugs, sometimes referred to generally as compounding pharmacies, manufacturers of devices or medical supplies. This is key right here, this blue item number six. Entities or individuals that sell DME POS other than a pharmacy or physician provider or other entity that primarily furnishes services, all of which remain eligible, referred to generally throughout this preamble as DME POS companies. That's crucial right there because very select types of DME POS, as long as we are meeting these other parameters, are okay, but make sure that you're outlining all of that in that general document. 
And finally, medical device distributors and wholesalers that are not otherwise manufacturers of devices or medical supplies. For example, some physician-owned distributors. So another key aspect of referrals and fair market value, which relate to Stark and anti-kickback, have been the source of a lot of indigestion for a lot of people throughout the healthcare industry. And this particular quote from the former Assistant Attorney General Jody Hunt made on November 26th of 2019 is really palpable. Paying kickbacks to doctors in exchange for referrals undermines the integrity of federal health care programs. So how does that quote, which is pre these final rules, still apply? So first and foremost, Stark prohibits hospitals and other providers from billing Medicare for certain services, including inpatient and outpatient hospital care that have been referred by physicians with whom the hospital has an improper financial relationship. If you're not familiar with the Toomey case, it is one of the largest Stark Law settlements in the history of the False Claims Act and of the Stark Law. And in fact, the trial court entered a judgment in October of 2013 for more than $237 million. The Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit affirmed the judgment on July 2nd of 2015. This gives a flavor of the, I will call it the old regime of Stark, not utilizing value-based purchasing, not using value-based models, BBEs, and so forth. But again, just because you engage in something that looks okay, you have to make sure you're meeting all of the elements under Stark for an exception. By way of contrast, AKS referrals, the broad tenement there is that payments for patient referrals violate both Stark Law and the AKS, unless a safe harbor or exception is met. In a particular case, the Boston Heart case, a $26.7 million settlement with the DOJ was entered into to resolve allegations that Boston Heart conspired with other to pay doctors kickbacks disguised as investment returns. This only occurred within a two-year period. So that is pretty telling that a $26.7 million settlement was reached. Here, Boston Heart allegedly agreed to provide laboratory testing services to small Texas hospitals in exchange for per-test payments to generate more referrals for the hospitals and more money for itself, Boston Heart allegedly coordinated with the hospital's independent marketers who set up companies known as management service organizations to make payments to referring physicians that were disguised as investment returns, but were actually based on and offered in exchange for the physician's referral. Now, the new safe harbor and referrals. So overall, value-based safe harbors as finalized do not include the traditional fraud and abuse safeguards of fair market value, 
or a broad prohibition on taking into account the volume or value of any referrals. Having said that, new safeguards in each respective safe harbor have been implemented to curtail fraud and abuse. For example, a population on a prohibition on taking into account volume or value of referrals outside the target patient population. Second, limits on directed referrals. Third, ineligible entities, again, which comes out of the anti-kickback safe harbors there. Risk sharing, which is required by both the substantial downside financial risk and the full financial risk safe harbors, and contribution requirements for, for recipients. Again, that to me translates into co-pays or deductibles. So just be very cautious in those areas. Tread very, very lightly as there were no modifications to waiving of co-payments or deductibles anywhere in these new final rules, either for Stark or the anti-kickback statute. Fair market value is typically defined as by the Stark law the value in arm's length transactions consistent with the general market value and the federal regulations have interpreted general market value to refer to the compensation that would be included in a service agreement as a result of a bona fide bargaining effort. So here the AKS final rule expressly states that nothing in the risk-based safe harbors prevents parties from negotiating fair market value arrangements for services or from using the personal services management contract and outcomes-based payments safe harbor at paragraph 1001.952D, which includes fair market value requirements. Notably, the care coordination arrangement safe harbor does not protect monetary payments including payments for services such as radiology for imaging. And lastly, an additional factor with the AKS statute is the list of ineligible entities. If those entities are involved in paying kickbacks, then the safe harbors cannot apply and therefore are not being met. Overall, liability can still attach to the conduct under the AKS and the False Claims Act. Now, the Stark final rule nuances, the previous language indicated that the exception for bona fide employment relationships includes requirements that the arrangement is commercially reasonable, the compensation paid to the physician is fair market value, and the compensation is not determined in any manner that takes into account the volume or value of the physician's referral. These requirements are notably absent from the new final exceptions at section 411.357AA. Depending on the terms and conditions of the value-based arrangement, the arrangement may be unable to satisfy all of the requirements of the exception for a bona fide employment relationship. The ultimate determination is as it has always been, based on the totality of facts and circumstances. So 
So as we round up the webinar and I open the floor to questions, here are some key items. First and foremost, read both final rules and compare them. Define what your targeted group is, but do not make it all government beneficiaries. It has to be smaller and more targeted than that. Write a detailed governing document. Create the appropriate arrangement or VBE, as well as relevant policies and procedures. Ascertain if, quote, one purpose of the arrangement is to induce referrals. Keep track of the outcomes in order to provide visible, demonstrable evidence, or VDE. Evaluate the arrangement on an annual basis and refine as necessary based on the previous year's objectives and outcomes, as well as other potential changes in the regulatory landscape. And with that, I wanted to thank First Healthcare Compliance for having me as a guest here today as well as all of you, the participants, for your time and attention to this very important subject matter. With that, I wish you a happy holiday season, and I will open the floor to any questions. Thank you so much, Rachel. Uh, thank you so much for those updates and for this very important information. We do have a few questions. So uh, the first one is, from your perspective, what safe harbors or exceptions are the most difficult to grasp and also implement? So that's an excellent question, which I alluded to in the presentation, but did not do a deep dive into it. That has to do with evaluating financial relationships based on upside risk and downside risk as well as allocating the risk between the various parties. Okay, and then uh, another question here. Has there been widespread adoption of value-based care in the commercial private sector, um, commercial and private sector, as well as with um, the government programs since the Affordable Care Act? So that's another great question. And as we saw with the slides that were posted. Since the passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2010, a myriad of various value-based initiatives have rolled out in terms of payments, in terms of value-based purchasing, in terms of the individual entities and their nuanced value-based initiatives, such as home care, home health care and the skilled nursing facilities, as well as hospitals. Accountable care organizations are another form of a value-based initiative, as well as hospital-acquired conditions. So there is no doubt, as that timeline that I displayed showed, that value-based care has really been a driving force from the government's perspective, and as such, various providers have adopted that method and different initiatives, at least with government payers. As I also noted, there has been a transition in the commercial payer segment too, although the number of entities participating isn't quite what it is with government healthcare programs. Okay, great. All right. Um, how should organizations go about implementing the elements to meet the safeguards? 
So it, you need to take a step-by-step -step approach, and the best way to do it is to start with what I will call the value-based definitions that I put up. The VBE, that value-based enterprise or value-based arrangement, you have to define it. Then you have to de define what your target population is. Then you go into whether or not you need a contract or you need to create a new LLC. From there, you delve into that general document, refine policies and procedures, and take the steps that are required under those value-based purposes and what's required of a value-based participant. Okay, and then um, what is the potential liability for different entities in relation to False Claims Act lawsuits? This is a, this is a question I'm sure that's on a lot of people's minds. Yes, absolutely. So as I listed two examples in the presentation, there were a couple of items that are critical. So the first item is the the first item is the AKS and how that really, once you prove the enter under the anti-kickback statute, False Claims Act liability is really easily added on. And then the second part of that is the Stark Law, and we saw it to me, and both of those laws have formed and continue to form a large part of the DOJ's enforcement initiative. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. Uh, do you have any other words of advice you'd like to leave with us today? No, I think that's it. Other than reading the laws and comparing the differences like we saw, even with the eligible entities versus ineligible entities, I think it will be interesting to see how this plays out over time. Okay. All right. Great. Uh, well, I wanted to thank you so much for being here today. We always appreciate your knowledge that you have to impart with us. And um, we look forward to the next time that you're going to be on. And I wanted to remind um, our, our attendees to be on the lookout also for um, any blogs or uh, radio show podcasts that we have on this subject as well. And I wanted to, to thank you again, Rachel. Thank you, Catherine, and happy holidays. Happy holidays to you, too. Um, attendees, please use the contact information um, on the screen. I know that um, Rachel has her resources here as well, but don't forget you can download um, a copy of the slides here, a PDF of them, um, in the handouts section of this presentation. Um, and if you think of questions later, uh, you can email them to us also. And please remember your PACOM and your PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. You can register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at, first H sorry, at firsthcc.com or call us at 
543-4778. And I wanted to just mention, if you're watching this later on on our YouTube site, um, you have to be watching it um, in the moment um, at the time that we broadcast to get CEU certificates. So um, that's when those qualify. So this this um, disclaimer here or this does not does not qualify you for the CEUs. You have to watch it um, at the live broadcast part. So um, attendees, um, and if you didn't know that we have a YouTube channel, be sure to check that out. Um, you, you go to YouTube and it is at um, First Healthcare Compliance um, on YouTube. So we have all kinds of um, uh, uh, webinars on there. You can find lots by Rachel Rose um, as well. And so I wanted to thank you all and thank you for joining us.